Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. So today, I'm very happy to have a great guest on the show to talk about a new book he's written. And today, we have Barack Mendelson on the Loopcast. So first, thank you so much for coming on the Loopcast, Barack. It's a pleasure. So we're going to be talking about Barack's new book called Jihadism Constrained, The Limits of Transnational Jihadism and What It Means for Counterterrorism. I've had the pleasure of looking over and reading this book, as well as attending a talk that Barack did at American University a couple of months ago. And it's a really great book that tackles with really good case studies and this idea of jihadism and what sort of threat it really poses, especially on the transnational level. So very excited to have Barack on the show. Listeners that might not know Barack's background, which I will give you a little tidbit because he has a lot, but we've encapsulated it. So he is a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute, aka FPRI, and he's an associate professor of political science at Haverford College. His specialties include radical Islamist organizations with a focus on al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. He also has interests that cover the Middle East, security issues, international order, U.S. foreign policy, along with terrorism and counterterrorism. He is also the author of two other books that we want to mention, which is the Al-Qaeda franchise, The Expansion of Al-Qaeda and Its Consequences, along with Combating Jihadism, American Hegemony, and the International Cooperation in the War on Terrorism. So once again, thank you for being here, Barack. Thank you for having me. Why don't we just start off with what inspired you to write your latest book? So the... Uh, it actually the I did not plan on writing this uh, book. Uh, we were thinking with a group of uh, FPRI people, Foreign Policy Research Institute people, about uh, a project, a new project after the Caliphate, uh, which should discuss what uh, our expectations uh, and predictions uh, for Iraq and Syria and the region. Uh, following the uh, defeat or close to defeat of the Islamic State. And so for that uh, project, I was trying to think about what kind of contribution uh, I can make, but I felt that I have some issues with the basic assumptions uh, that motivated that uh, uh, that project, and I felt that I can actually come up with a counter uh, argument since the other parts of the project did focus on the many challenges uh, that come from, uh, well, with the seeming end of the uh, civil war in Syria uh, and in Iraq. And, uh, but I thought that if you take a broader look, uh, perhaps this kind of project is actually reinforcing the sense of threat in a way that hypes the threat. And so I started thinking about what can I do uh, that will change the picture. Uh, and I decided to write this book. Now, this comes on the heels of... Uh, I would say by now, uh, 19 years of working on the uh, subject of uh, Al-Qaeda, 18 years. And 
during this time, I was continuously, uh, my thinking about the subject continuously evolved. Uh, if after 9-11, there was a, a very strong sense of uh, threat that was pervasive in many of the assessments, as the time uh, went by and we knew more, got more information, the picture became clear. The moves that uh, jihadi groups have been taking became clear and seeing what's going on with the way that politicians deal with the question of Al-Qaeda, uh, I felt that we are exaggerating the sense of threat. So after the short period after 9-11, when it seems that uh, everybody is focusing on uh, emphasizing the threat, it seems that at a certain point we may have exaggerated. Uh, and so I decided that it's time to come up with a, uh, an analysis of the many limitations that jihadi groups have so that we can have a more nuanced picture of the problem. So it was the book was sort of a, uh, a long-term process of thinking about the problem of terrorism and thinking about the problem of jihadism and trying to, over time, calibrate the assessment of the threat so that we won't find ourselves overreacting, that we don't find ourselves engaged in uh, spending too much resources and energy on a problem that uh, is probably competing with other priorities that maybe require at least as much, if not more, of the resources that we have. Well, I know you said you weren't planning on writing another book, but I'm very glad that you did write this book. <laughs> Because terrorism is such a high emotional topic, and sometimes because of the emotions that are involved, the threats of a group or an individual can be highly increased compared to what it really is. And like you said in your book, you've really highlighted the things that could deter or limit the amount of threat, especially on the transnational level. So getting into the weeds of the book... Why don't you discuss the cases you used in the book so that readers that haven't read it yet can know the basis of your arguments? So uh, in this case, it was more of an analytical book rather than one that is based on extensive uh, field research. Uh, so it collected cases from uh, every aspect. But the argument itself uh, uh, was... I hope, pretty uh, pretty clear. I try to argue that uh, transnational jihadism, which means primarily uh, groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, uh, despite the fear that we have from them, uh, which in some part is justified given the actions that they took, uh, I argue that they have some significant systemic uh, suffer from significant systemic shortcomings. And those systemic shortcomings uh, should help us to understand that the problem is not as great as it seemed. Now, in order to get to that perspective, I first uh, emphasize that most of the work that we see about terrorism of, is focused on, uh, I would say, tactical aspects of terrorism. Most of the work that is done by intelligence services is designed to stop terrorist 
acts. But in reality, when we think about the problem of terrorism, we need to think about the other side. Terrorism is never just in order to uh, carry out violence. It's supposed to serve some kind of political objectives. And if we forget the political objectives, uh, we are losing the big picture. So yes, we need to pay attention to threats of terrorist attacks, but it's very important that at the same time, we will also assess the ability of uh, terrorist groups to achieve their political objective, because this is a central measure for whether they are succeeding or not. So I divided the argument to three kinds, three types of limitations. Uh, so the first type of limitation was an ideational uh, limitation that suggested that the kind of objectives of transnational jihadi groups conflict with the way that most Muslims are seeing themselves and seeing the world, and therefore it makes it extremely hard uh, for transnational jihadi groups to actually get the support that they need for their project. The second element uh, was an operational element. If the first one was about the ability of transnational jihadi actors to actually persuade people to adopt uh, their strategy, their views of uh, identity, of Islam, of being Muslim, the second aspect focuses on operational problems. Transnational jihadi actors have objectives that require them to achieve success in more than one location, and more important, to connect those successes. So the second aspect that I'm pointing at is how the different grand strategies of transnational jihadi actors fail to actually come with a plan that will allow them to achieve their political goals. And finally, the last uh, case of, or the last part of the argument is that there is another part that since the task is so big and since they have so many difficulties in operationalizing uh, the objectives, you would at least expect that these guys will be able to come together to overcome the significant gap in capabilities between these terrorist actors and the state that they are fighting. But in reality, not only they can't come together, they also find themselves fighting each other all the time. So this was the structure that I used to say that we have three systemic problems that make the threat of transnational jihadism much more limited uh, than we tend to think of. So starting out with your, your first instance of identities, how can we look at national identities and tribal identities and how they might help or inhibit a group and their goals? Right. Um, so when you think about transnational jihadi actors, and, and I want to first emphasize that there is a different, the jihadi world is huge, uh, and there is so much variation. It's complicated to speak about the jihadi camp as one. And for this reason, it's also going to be wrong to try to assess the jihadi threat as the a combination of the capabilities and manpower of all jihadi groups together. 
So you have within the jihadi camp, one distinction that I make are jihadi groups that want to bring about change only within the state that they're operating. And other groups that want to bring about change far beyond the boundaries of their own state. So the first kind of group are actors that want to, like other terrorist organizations, usually want to take control over a state and want to impose a certain kind of regime type. But the transnational jihadi groups want to achieve something much more significant, much bigger. What they want to do is to overthrow the existing system, the existing international system. Instead of a system that is based on sovereign state, each state has its own national identity and its own interest. And all these states together are bounded uh, through international organizations and through international law and through some uh, self-identification as states. For transnational jihadis, this is something that they oppose. They do not accept this kind of international order. And instead, they want to create a religious-based order. They see the world as one entity. And in that one entity, the world is guided by religious affiliation. You could have non-Muslims as well in that uh, uh, religious order, but they should be subordinated to Muslims. The whole state is going to be basically an empire, a Muslim empire, not one that is based on equality between its uh, citizens. Uh, But this is one that overcomes divisions of race and of nationality. And indeed, this is what groups like Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State keep keep praising and keep saying, we are different than what you see around you, as opposed to the conflict that we see between people based on race and based on their nationality and different tribal identities. We are offering you a religion that allows you to overcome all these differences that separate between people. We offer you Islam as a governing system. So they are trying to overturn the way that we see the world and to build instead a world that is based on religious affiliation. The problem is that in order to achieve this kind of world, they need to overcome the one that we're living in. And so they need to come up with a plan of how to persuade Muslims to join the cause And for the Muslims to join the cause, that means that Muslims must see themselves first and foremost as citizens of that Islamic empire, caliphate, if you will, rather than as members of their own uh, nation states, or alternatively as members of their own tribes. And here is the place where I see lots of problems that jihadis are facing. Because even though we do see that uh, Muslims all over the world uh, have been reported to say that they want to see more religion in their life. But in reality, the kind of religion that they want to see in their life is nothing like what Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State are offering. What uh, most Muslims in the world see when they think about more Islamic law is that they want more Islam in their personal life, maybe in 
family uh, law, but they don't see Islam as a guide for politics. And in reality, every time that we see uh, polls that speak about whether Muslims identify uh, themselves first as with the religion or with their nationality, the polls are suggesting that people are identifying first and foremost with their nation and only then as Muslims. And so you can have uh, most Muslims see themselves as member of nation states. For the jihadi groups to succeed, they need to convince Muslims not to belong to the nation states that they see themselves as members and instead to identify themselves as part of that caliphate. And this is a very tall order for them to achieve. So when thinking about this, where do foreign fighters fit in since, especially with Syria, we saw a number of individuals from different nation states joining the caliphate? So I think the foreign fighter is actually a very interesting case, an attempt for social engineering that only shows how enormous the objectives of transnational jihadis are and how unlikely they are to succeed. So foreign fighters are coming to join their brother Muslims and help them fighting against actors that are uh, hurting Muslims. So on the face of it, this is a matter of solidarity between Muslims and it should bring Muslims together. But for a group like the Islamic State, having foreign fighters have additional meaning. By bringing foreign fighters, you are creating a new entity, one that is not based on nationality, but one that is based on religion. Foreign fighters were needed in Iraq and in Syria in part for material reasons, because the people that worked uh, under Assad and under uh, Saddam Hussein or the Iraqi regime that uh, uh, replaced him later on, uh, those professionals often escaped once Al-Qaeda, once the Islamic State uh, took control. And because they left, then for the Islamic State to operate, they needed some expertise, and the foreign fighters were able to provide that expertise. But the foreign fighters provided beyond that. By bringing lots of foreign fighters, the Islamic State was able to hope that at least that will help in creating a new kind of identity, identity that is based on the caliphate, not on actors being from Syria, from Iraq, or from Germany. In reality, that experiment failed. The foreigners were never really accepted as part of the locals. Often they had very different positions from the locals and they did not know the area. They were not familiar with the local sensitivities and they took for themselves uh, prerogatives that upset the locals. So instead of trying to it create a unity between Muslims from different nationality. The experiment with foreign fighters only showed how much difference there is between jihadis or Muslims of different nationalities. And it ended up as significant conflicts between locals and foreigners. Now, this is not new. We saw the phenomenon happening uh, elsewhere. People think that all the jihadis always supported the Taliban. 
but it's important to note that during the 1990s, and actually uh, there were cases similar like that in the 1980s, but during the 1990s there were lots of jihadis that found the Taliban as apostates. And because they found the Taliban as uh, uh, apostates, they thought that it's allowed to attack them and kill them. And so even the Taliban were often not Muslim enough for many of those uh, jihadis. So the foreign fighters, even in the 1980s, 1990s, wherever they went, always ended up being more extreme than the locals, always ended up in conflicts with the locals, and eventually when the time came for a solution, they had to be kicked out. And so foreign fighter is a really interesting way to show how the efforts of transnational jihadis tend to fail. They can attract at first, but that attraction of foreign fighters only lead to further escalation of the violence, and it's actually eroding their effort to create an identity that is common to all Muslims. It really seems like a catch-22 for groups because the idea of it seems great, unity, etc., expansion, members from all races and countries, etc., but in reality, as you've just mentioned, it's very problematic for groups. Well, but look at what happened in Bosnia. The foreign fighters were very helpful in Bosnia in the 1990s. But at a certain point, when you need to reach a deal, when you need to bargain a political solution, the jihadis cannot provide that because they cannot compromise. And so what happened in Bosnia was that as part of the Dayton Accords, the Bosnians had to kick out the jihadis, because they were no longer necessary. So yes, it's a kind of catch-22. Sometimes you need transnational jihadis to come and help you, but once you let them in, you open a can of worms for other problems. And of course, these days, if you're turning to foreign jihadis, it's going to cost you later on. Because if at any point you would like to be involved with the United States or get the United States involved in mediation efforts, the United States will not accept any kind of political scene in which Al-Qaeda or jihadi groups are perceived as legitimate actors. So this is another uh, downside of using uh, transnational jihadis. They can provide you some operational success, perhaps, but they end up as undermining your political objective later on. So on that note, how do the operations and the ideals of these groups, let's say the transnational groups, limit their aspirations for transnational operations, etc.? So I think it's from the operational perspective, uh, in order for the for transnational jihadi to succeed, uh, they need to they need to succeed in separate location, but then they need to bring them together. They need to create a synergy, what I call in the book the aggregation problem. Because it's not enough for groups like that to uh, be successful in one location or the other, 
if they cannot merge those locations and create systemic effects. So this is a huge issue. You can be successful in some locations, but you end up then, if you cannot expand, then you end up as no more than other state-based jihadi groups that want to bring about change in their own small environment or state, but nothing beyond that. So in order to see whether jihadis have any kind of solution to this problem, and by the way, the problem became a lot more severe after 9-11 because 9-11 alerted the international community to the problem, and after 9-11, we see much better border controls. We see better ability of the international community to identify when actors are crossing borders. And so the realities of after 9-11 was that many jihadis were not able to operate across borders. And in this regard, that job spree created new opportunities. But the post-9-11 world was such that it was very hard for jihadis to operate. The success of 9-11 uh, very quickly became a problem as counterterrorism made things very difficult for transnational jihadis. So I try to look at the different grand strategies that uh, uh, jihadi thinkers or jihadi groups uh, try to present, how they can bring together uh, local operational success to create political synergy, political strategic effects. So I looked at uh, five grand strategies. One, the one that's promoted by Al-Qaeda, that was the Bin Laden's, what I called America First uh, strategy. Uh, the second was uh, the case of, uh, Al- of uh, uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi's master plan uh, related to Iraq and beyond. Uh, the third was the caliphate, the move by the Islamic State, uh, the caliphate as their own grand strategy designed to overcome the aggregation problem. And finally, I looked at two thinkers, uh, Abu Musab Asuri, who wrote a book about uh, lone wolf jihad, uh, or leaderless jihad primarily, and um, a book by uh, Abu Bakr Naji uh, called Management of Savagery. Uh, so, all five are trying to present some kind of grand strategies to how uh, the transnational jihadi movement can succeed. And I show how none of them provides a solution for the aggregation problem. In one case, it's really astonishing uh, if you read the management of savagery. Now, the, the author of the management of savagery, uh, Abu Bakr Naji, probably... Uh, an Egyptian jihadi that was a mid-level member of Gamay Islamiyah, the Egyptian Gamay Islamiyah, at a certain point joined uh, Al-Qaeda. Uh, he was killed in a, a drone attack uh, over a decade ago. But his work affected both Al-Qaeda and the thinking of the uh, Islamic State. Now, this is a huge work, and uh, it's about 100-page long uh, book that uh, uh, Will McKenzie uh, translated, made 
did an amazing work for all of us translating this book. So it's a 100-page long book that was supposed to be all about strategy. How can jihadis take advantage of that stage of what they call savagery? The stage where the state security is collapsing, but there is still no other uh, authority in their stead. How do you take advantage of that situation in order to advance the uh, jihadi cause? So this is a very significant book. Uh, everybody's using that. On the face of it, this is a statement of grand strategy. And yet at the end of the book, you find that the last few pages of the book are sort of an apology where it says, all this plan that I portrayed here seems to you like maybe something that is just impossible to achieve. But know what? God is capable of miracles. So when you end up a book about grand strategy and saying eventually, you know, God is on our side and God is going to uh, solve our solution, this is a really strong indication of the problems of grand strategy within jihadi groups. Ultimately, the grand strategy is not working and it all ends up depending on God's will. And God's will... Clausewitz would say probably not the best strategic uh, design. On that point, would you say, in your opinion, that having a master plan is actually a pitfall for transnational groups? We always hear that having a plan is a good thing, but with such changing environments constantly, both politically and violently, etc., maybe having a master plan is not the best because if you stick to the plan, you might actually be hindering yourself. Well, this is not just a question for terrorist organizations. This is a question of, in general, large organizations. To what extent can you make long-term plans and how do you account for uh, changes in the environment, the external shocks that might happen, uh, in between or some other developments, we are living in uncertainty, under uncertainty, and we cannot really tell that our grand strategies, how they will work. But it is important to have a grand strategy because it gives you the general, most important principles, what it is that you want to achieve. And once you have that set, you can have some flexibility, but you need that in order to tie your objectives, tie your action to the uh, attainment of your objectives. When you look at the jihadi groups, uh, there's a fascinating part in uh, the writing of Abu Walid al-Masri. Uh, he was one of the most important jihadis in Afghanistan in the 1980s and 1990s, a very independent thinker, uh, the father-in-law of Saif al-Adil, who was number three in Al-Qaeda, and one of the most important uh, um, opposition to Bin Laden. Uh, we saw lots of problems with the strategic thinking of, of Bin Laden. So Abu Walid al-Masri is complaining about people that are coming with faith. So he says, all these young people that are coming from Saudi Arabia to fight here in Afghanistan, but all they want is to commit 
to become martyrs. They are not trying to connect their death to any kind of strategic advantage that we might get. And so the idea is that it's not enough. You can't just rely on the use of violence. You've got to have a plan that will tie the violence to achieving some political objectives. Now, it might be hard to achieve, and definitely for transnational jihadis, uh, because the scope of what they want to achieve is so big uh, that the likelihood of any grand strategy to succeed uh, is is very high, is very low. But you still got to have some kind of plan, because otherwise all you have is nihilistic, nihilistic violence. And yes, it could be that you can just be a jihadi that all your violence is just uh, an opposition violence. But so far, all the jihadi groups that we're seeing are groups that are trying to create a new situation, try to create new reality. You've got to have some kind of plan to achieve that. As I said, this is not just for terrorist organizations. States live or companies live in a world of uncertainty that doesn't discharge from the need to come up with a plan. Just need to make sure that it's going to be flexible enough. So speaking of violence, let's move on to intra-jihadi conflict and what that means in the broader terms for these groups. So yeah, so after showing how difficult it is uh, for the jihadis to achieve the ways because we have those serious ideational and material uh, problems, then you got to fall back. Say, okay, at least you would expect all the jihadi camp to come together, but in reality, that doesn't happen. Now we see different kinds of reasons for conflict within the jihadi camp. So you can have uh, disagreements over strategic objectives. Uh, you can look at uh, the 1990s, for example, where you had a competition between three different uh, worldviews. One that thought that after the war in Afghanistan, what we need to do now is go back and fight the near enemy, fight the Arab regimes. Another strategic orientation was, no, we need to go to a new place where occupiers... Uh, are oppressing Muslims, and we need to help them to get free from that foreign occupation, something that they tried in places like uh, Bosnia, Chechnya. By the way, for the first group fighting the near enemy, there were jihadis that went to do exactly that in Algeria, in Libya, in Egypt. And then you had the third orientation, the one that Bin Laden suggested, one that is focused on uh, the United States. So already in the 1990s, you see that there is a strategic disagreement uh, about what needs to happen, what should be the next uh, strategy. Then you have conflicts, as I mentioned, between foreigners and locals, whether it's going to be between Arabs and uh, non-Arabs, between jihadis and non-jihadis, and, of course, uh, 
between locals and, uh, in Iraq or locals in Syria and the Iraqi occupiers of ISIS or uh, the members of uh, other nation states. So that's another uh, kind of conflict that we see a lot in the jihadi camp. Then you have the conflict between happening among the elite. Uh, instead of thinking about uh, jihadi actors or jihadi individuals as masterminds, uh, we better think about them as people uh, that have huge egos and often find themselves fighting uh, fights that are not really ideological, but mostly about power and position and prestige. And so you can see lots of those fights, whether it's the fight between Abdallah Azam was... Uh, the first Bin Laden mentor in Afghanistan and his competition with Ayman al-Zawahiri. Uh, there were, in the, uh, there were uh, personal conflicts between Abu Musab al-Zarqawi in Iraq and Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi, who used to be his mentor in Jordan. We see the conflicts, personal conflicts, between Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi these days, the uh, Caliph Ibrahim, so called, uh, and Ayman al-Zawahiri. And this is a significant conflict between personalities. When people speak about the prospects of unification between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State in the future, keep telling them, as long as one of these two guys is still in office, there is no chance for reconciliation, because the personal hostility is extremely, extremely high. So you have these kind of differences, but I thought that what's especially interesting about the internal conflicts is the tools that are used, especially the religious tools that are used to manage to these conflicts and what these religious tools are doing to the relationship between uh, jihadi groups and the long-lasting adverse effects that they have over prospects of any kind of cooperation between jihadi groups. So that's where I get to those two concepts of takfir uh, and um, uh, takfir and baya. So let me say a few things about takfir and baya, if you don't mind. So takfir is the action of uh, excommunicating somebody. Uh, so Chelsea is not acting according to uh, Islamic uh, imperatives. She violated some uh, most cardinal uh, rules of uh, being a Muslim, and therefore I decide to uh, excommunicate her. That's the action of takfir. The problem is that when you use takfir, this is not just a statement trying to say this person is not religious enough. It comes with specific implications. When you excommunicate somebody, it means that you make his blood or her blood permissible. An apostate can be legally killed because one can never leave, legitimately leave Islam. So any action that means that you ended up leaving Islam, is one that can uh, make you a target for, for killing. And so the uh, claim of takfir 
excommunicating those that you disagree with are actually a tool that make the conflict much more severe and much more intractable. So when you start excommunicating people, that means that for the general jihadi movement, people are busy fighting each other. Not only can't they uh, collaborate, but they have to direct the resources one against the other because claim of excommunication is claimed that is accompanied by the threat of violence. And of course, once you started throwing accusations of excommunication, uh, once you started throwing these kind of uh, threats, there is no way back. You cannot say, okay, I now... Uh, turn back for my excommunication. If you excommunicated somebody, there is really no significant way back. Now, what's make it especially interesting in the case of uh, uh, jihadis and takfir is the way that transnational jihadis, at least some small segment of them, can take the practice of takfir to to ridiculous extremes that just make conflict within the jihadi movement a lot more uh, likely. So here's the example, uh, and, and this is a case of, uh, that is called the question of a chain of takfir. And this is a source of continuous conflict within the Islamic State these days. So this is a problem that is eating organizations from within, not just eating the movement from within, but even within each organization. So what is the issue with the chain of takfir? If you are an actor like the Islamic State, then not only you believe in excommunication, but you also believe in a relatively wide application of uh, the use of uh, takfir. This is the most radical views of Islam, and so... From that perspective of Islam, that I want to emphasize really represents a tiny, tiny segment of the Muslim uh, uh, Ummah worldwide, uh, then you have this very small group uh, that decides that certain actions uh, will make you a non-Muslim. And the more extreme those groups are, and of course our jihadi groups are very extreme, the more kind of actions could fall under the category of uh, actions that justify apostasy. Now, in one of the main documents that uh, jihadis rely on, uh, a document from uh, Abu Muhammad ibn Abdel Wahab, one of the founders of the uh, Saudi state from the 18th century, he wrote a book about Ten nullifiers of Islam. So this is the jihadis' uh, most extreme version of what kind of actions would make one from Muslim to an apostate. One of those ten nullifiers speaks about chain of takfir. And the idea is such that if somebody identifies another person as somebody that violated uh, important imperatives in Islam, then that person has to call for, has to excommunicate its target. 
his target. Now, if that person saw that the other target is not fully following Islam or not following Islam, it's actually an apostate, yet the person did not excommunicate the one that was supposed to be excommunicated, then according to the nullifiers of Islam, the one that failed to excommunicate is excommunicated himself. So failing to excommunicate a person can make you an apostate. Now you can take the chain to the next level. What about the person that did not excommunicate the one that failed to excommunicate the one that was supposed to be excommunicated? So the chain of takfir can lead to excommunication of people that their only sin is failing to excommunicate somebody else, not because they did anything specifically worthy of excommunication. The problem is that if you go through this chain of takfir, you can easily excommunicate almost all the Muslim ummah. So even if the most radical elements in the Islamic State are trying to say, we're going to limit that to six degrees of separation, well, we know how far you can get with six degrees of separation, six degrees of chain of takfir. So here you see how the idea of chain of takfir, not only the issue of takfir is creating conflict within the Ummah, but the chain of takfir can lead to continuous conflict that prevents any kind of unity. And so indeed, within the Islamic State, the logic of a chain of takfir made some of the most radicals that are called the Hashimis uh, uh, among the ISIS, uh, led them to say that you got to excommunicate Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi. Remind you again, Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi, probably the most important jihadi scholar residing in Jordan. Uh, he was the original mentor of uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, and he is a big opponent of the Islamic State. So according to the Hashimis, uh, he was supposed to be excommunicated because he refused to accept the authority of the caliph. But since he did not uh, accept the authority of the caliph, he got to be excommunicated. What happens with all those that did not excommunicate him? So for the Hashimis, that means that all those got to be excommunicated. Now remember, Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi, the most important jihadi scholar. So that view, if people that did not excommunicate Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi need to be excommunicated, then almost all jihadis got to be excommunicated, which leaves you with very, very few kind of jihadis. More important, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the caliph, did not excommunicate, did not announce the excommunication of Abu Muhammad al-Makdisi. Does it mean that the caliph is an apostate? So as you can see, just the issue of chain of takfir can tie jihadis in internal debates and internal violence forever without allowing them to actually focus on achieving their goals against the infidels. This kind of view of excommunication is leading the jihadis to focus so much of their energies on creating purity within their camp 
and much less of the energy is then going to fight other actors. So I thought that that was a really interesting way how the use of religious terminology, terminology is only making conflict within the jihadi camp more likely, not less likely. And what about Bayah, so allegiance? So the question of allegiance, that's a, another very interesting uh, issue. Quite a, one of the main reasons why I, I studied terrorism and the jihadi movement is because this internal conflict within the jihadi camp are just fascinating. Uh, and it's very disappointing that so few people outside of the academia uh, and maybe those that are really interested in the topic knows how much variation and how much conflict there is within there is within the jihadi camp. So what is the issue with Baya? Baya is a pledge of allegiance. Now, let's go back to the early days of uh, Islam. Uh, this is an element that is taken from a tribal society where uh, people pledged allegiance uh, to their leader. In the case of Islam, the first leader is the prophet Muhammad. After Muhammad is uh, dead, he's being substituted by a caliph, the first caliph, uh, Abu Bakr. As you have a new caliph, now people need to pledge allegiance to the caliph. And so the bayah used to be an instrument in which people are tying their, themselves, tying their faith to that of the leader, normally the caliph. So this is really an instrument of keeping order. This is an instrument that's supposed to discourage splits. Because once you pledge allegiance to somebody, you cannot easily break it. In order to break your pledge of allegiance, the one you pledge to has to commit a very significant sin. Not any kind of sin. There needs to be a significant violation in order to count uh, uh, to justify breaking one's uh, pledge of allegiance. So this was supposed to be a tool to keep the Ummah, to keep Muslims together and to discord splits. Jihadi groups took that mechanism to themselves, and indeed every group has a leader, and the subordinates are pledging bayah to this leader. Again, you would think this is supposed to be an instrument of maintaining order. In reality, it's actually an instrument that leads to lots of conflict. So first is that the Pledge of Allegiance is a pledge to an individual, not to a group or not to a state. And so once an individual, that individual dies, the successor has to arrange getting all those pledges of allegiance anew. So this is really putting some significant strains on uh, a new leadership because it needs to get the support of all those that supported uh, the previous leader. The allegiance doesn't move automatically to the new leader. Now, if you are, and that happens from both sides. So if you look at Al-Qaeda, for example, 
a branch of Al-Qaeda can pledge allegiance to Al-Qaeda, but it's not really a pledge from a branch to the uh, Al-Qaeda central. It's a pledge from an individual standing at the head of a branch to the individual standing at the head of Al-Qaeda central. Or in the case of uh, the Islamic State, that would be uh, a pledge from a leader of organization in one of the wilayas to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Now, when either the leader of the Al-Qaeda dies or the leader of the uh, branch dies, you need to rearrange the pledges. So this gives you great opportunities to change your allegiances. Once bin Laden is dead, suddenly all Al-Qaeda franchises could have changed their allegiance. And once a leader of uh, a leader of a branch dies, then that branch can rethink its uh, options. And this is really one of the interesting aspects about Al-Qaeda's resilience is that we see after the rise of the caliphate, Al-Qaeda lost two branch leaders. It lost the leader of, it lost Godain, uh, that was killed, in, was the leader of uh, Al-Shabaab in Somalia, in Somalia, that was killed in 2014. And you have um, an... Um, uh, and you have al-Wahaishi in Yemen uh, that was killed in 2015 or 16. I'm not really sure. So you have the opportunity for these branches to change their allegiance, to switch from al-Qaeda to the Islamic State. So these kind of pledges, because they're personified, are creating opportunities for actors to break their allegiance and to switch sides. Al-Qaeda was very successful not uh, by keeping those actors uh, with it. Okay, but I'm digressing. So you have the Pledge of Allegiance, and the way that the Pledge of Allegiance uh, worked in the case of uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, remember, first there was the Islamic State of uh, work. First there was Al-Tawhid wal-Jihad led by Abu Musab al-Zakawi. That group decided to join Al-Qaeda and so pledged allegiance. Al-Zarqawi pledged allegiance to uh, Abu Musab, uh, to uh, Bin Laden. After that pledge of allegiance, then uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was supposed to be subordinated. But when Al-Qaeda in Iraq is starting its expansion to Syria, that was against the wishes of Al-Qaeda. So now the issue within the jihadi camp was question of whether the Islamic State had the right to become independent and to take action without the consent of Al-Qaeda. After all, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi pledged allegiance to Al-Qaeda. This was really the heart of the conflict between Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State was who has the right to govern? Al-Qaeda said, well, the Islamic State is uh, the new, or the Islamic State of Iraq and Asham, as it was called since 2013, is a continuation of al-Zarqawi's group and of the Islamic State of Iraq, and all these pledged by to us. Therefore, Al-Qaeda said, 
Abu uh, Bakr al-Baghdadi didn't have any right to take the Islamic State of Iraq from al-Qaeda. Therefore, he violated his pledge of allegiance and nobody should follow him. The Islamic State said, well, this is not the case. They said, actually, we stopped pledging our pledge of allegiance. We pledged allegiance as al-Tawhid wal-Jihad, but once we established the Islamic State of Iraq in 2006, we no longer pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda. Furthermore, they say, actually, at that point, because we presented ourselves as a state, we can no longer be subordinate to al-Qaeda because al-Qaeda is just an organization. A state can never be subordinate to an organization. And so this is where really the fight is going on between al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. The Islamic State said, moreover, al-Qaeda under Zawahiri, Islamic State was a lot more careful when uh, bin Laden was alive, but Zawahiri has much less popularity. And so the Islamic State said, not only that, but Zawahiri committed such sins that justify breaking from uh, Al-Qaeda. So even if we were subordinated for Al-Qaeda, the actions that it took after bin Laden died justified breaking that allegiance. What makes it really uh, intriguing here and adds complexity is the role of Jabhat al-Nusra in this story. Remember Jabhat al-Nusra started with a few Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State of Iraq members moving from Iraq in the summer of 2011 to Syria, where they started establishing a jihadi group that over time became known as Jabhat al-Nusra, and uh, that was in January 2012. Then the following year, the Islamic State of Iraq decides to expand into uh, Syria, and it says we are now, we were uh, in charge over the Islam, over Jabhat al-Nusra, but we didn't announce that. Now situation is permitting us to announce our expansion, and now we should be called the Islamic State of Iraq and Asham, which will include Jabhat al-Nusra. That was their claim. Came the leader of Jabhat al-Nusra and says, well, actually, no, that's not the case. We do not see ourselves as subordinated to the Islamic State of Iraq. In fact, we see ourselves as subordinated to Al-Qaeda. Therefore, he said, I refuse to accept the Islamic State of Iraq expansion into uh, Syria. I I refuse to break Jabhat al-Nusra and join uh, the Islamic State. Instead, I'm re-pledging my allegiance to al-Qaeda. So the question of Jabhat al-Nusra became a really important thorn uh, uh, for both sides because Al-Qaeda argued, well, the Islamic State violated their pledge of allegiance to us. The Islamic State said, well, it was Jabhat al-Nusra that violated their pledge of allegiance to us, and by Al-Qaeda's will to allow 
to accept Jabhat al-Nusra, Al-Qaeda now is committing such huge sins that again make it important to uh, excommunicate or to uh, at least distance themselves from, um, from Ayman al-Zawahiri. Interestingly, a couple of years later, the same complaints that Al-Qaeda had about uh, the Islamic State saying that they broke their allegiance where they shouldn't have, that they tried to establish the caliphate without getting the approval of al-Qaeda and without consulting anybody. We see the same kind of debates happening after the break of Jabhat al-Nusra, Jabhat al-Nusra from uh, al-Qaeda, with al-Qaeda making very similar arguments against Jabhat al-Nusra, saying that Jabhat al-Nusra decided to become independent without the approval of uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri. So these questions of who is responsible for who, who is in charge, who is the authority, are taking so much energy, are such cause for division within the jihadi camp that uh, they can preoccupy those actors instead of uniting them all together and allowing them to take advantage of the capabilities that they have against foreign actors. Instead, this kind of mechanism only increase internal violence and just distract those jihadi groups from their real targets. Contemplating everything we've talked about in this discussion and looking at all of the things that really could inhibit a group from expanding on the transnational scene, my final question for you is, transnational jihadism really sustainable for a group? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, well, you can imagine a transnational jihadi group that has transnational only because it has limited objectives, but ones that are beyond one boundary, right? trying to expand a little bit. Uh, but Transnational jihadism as an effort to overthrow the existing uh, state-based order uh, is just bound to fail. These kind of limits are just uh, too much, and the jihadi groups found that they cannot get the public support that they need. They cannot get anybody to, uh, they cannot get enough people to mobilize. And even though people are looking at 40,000, number 40,000, 40,000 um, individuals that went to fight as foreign fighters to fight or to join uh, the Islamic State in Syria and Iraq, look at that and point at that as an evidence for success. You want to remind everybody, this is just 40,000 people. The UMA, something between 1.6 to 1.8 billion Muslims, that doesn't seem like a, a very big success. So it seems that the transnational jihadi actors are just bound to fail. And because they're bound to fail, it was really important for me to write this book because I try to suggest at the end of the book policy prescriptions, how we need to recalibrate our policies. Because if the threat is not as severe as uh, it seems, and since we have so many other competing priorities, it should be we would be wise to spend less time and energy on transnational 
jihadism and more on the other objectives. And so I come up with a long list of uh, policy recommendations. But I guess the most important is that for the United States to adopt a policy of containment. I argue that the United States can fight against transnational jihadis uh, without investing so much, uh, so many resources as it is doing now. That the United States can now understand the limits of transnational jihadism and it can try to limit its involvement, especially since the involvement of the United States tend to often aggravate crisis. So I'm calling for a policy of uh, containment in which the United States could get involved in certain opportunities, but not on any case where we see jihadis fighting. Not every time that we see a jihadi operating someplace, this is a reason for an intervention. In fact, because the threat is uh, multilateral and yet limited in scope, I think that it would be we would be better off if there will be a multilateral rapid response force to come together with that policy of containment so that the international community can make sure that no jihadi actors uh, uh, create effects beyond particular location. So the international community can help each state that is suffering from the threat of jihadism, but the main focus is going to be on the state itself to take action. The international community will come together more closely only when we're starting to see spillover effects so that terrorism that might happen in particular states is starting to have transnational effects. And this is where I expect the international community to take greater action and to become more involved. And this is a strategy that should make it easier for the United States to keep this war on uh, transnational jihadism because it put it on a more sustainable uh, footing and it gets a more uh, multilateral dimension. And so I, I think that this would be uh, very important uh, in the future. And this has to come from an understanding that the threat uh, has been exaggerated. Uh, one other really important point that I want to say that relates to this policy prescription, it's less about transnational jihadism, but it's more about the United States and uh, the way that uh, uh, how to deal with the problem of domestic terrorism in the United States or uh, the threat of jihadi terrorism in the uh, United States. Uh, the threat, as I said, is exaggerated, but clearly there will be cases of terrorist attacks. We're going to continue to see that, and some of them are going to lead to even large number of fatalities. Uh, I think this is almost inevitable, becoming uh, very easy to kill, and it's very hard to stop every kind of terrorist attack, especially when it comes from uh, lone wolves. Uh, but I think that it's, uh, but overall, that means that we will still need uh, domestic intelligence to help in identifying uh, potential attacks and try to uh, prevent them from happening. 
But I want to warn that uh, this can't come at the expense of the civil liberties of Muslims, and it must not come with any kind of Islamophobia. I would like to see people focusing on civic duties that everybody has. Everybody has the duty to reveal information about a terrorist attack uh, that they know of, regardless of their religious affiliation. And so I do not expect Muslims to act any differently than anybody else because they are Muslims. I would not want to see that kind of identification. I think that everybody has to reveal information to the authorities because they are residents or citizens of the state and because country and because this is their civic responsibility to each other, societal responsibility. But I don't want anybody uh, to... Muslims are not, should not be required to provide that kind of assistance because they are Muslims, but because they are, like everybody else, members of this country. And so it's really important that instead of trying to, uh, that we need be careful with the Islamophobia that we are creating, the overemphasis on Muslims is not helping counterterrorism, it's just uh, creating greater grievances and for no good reason. Moreover, it really plays into the hands of uh, transnational jihadi actors. And remember earlier I said they want to make people feel uh, that the only identity that they have is religious identity. Now, when we are acting out of Islamophobia, we are actually uh, portraying Muslims as not part of the national community. We are causing the same damage that ISIS wants us to do. Because we are this way, this kind of behavior just tells Muslims that, well, you are not recognized as part of the collective. You need to think about yourselves as Muslims. This is exactly the way that the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda wants them to think about themselves. And as I said, this is not really working. But we need to be very careful not to take action that only makes uh, disenchanted uh, uh, young Muslims uh, decide to go against the society in which they live. What we need instead is to reinforce the sense of national identity, to reinforce the sense of societal commitment, of societal solidarity, rather than try to force Muslims to pick between uh, being with the Islamic State or being completely with us. This is what the Islamic State is calling erasing the gray area. This is exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to force Muslims to make a choice. This is really wrong of us to play into these hands. What we need to do is to uh, embrace all the community and to try to uh, deal with the problem of uh, terrorism, especially jihadi terrorism, without causing more damage. And so we should be very careful the way that we are doing our domestic politics or our domestic policies so that the result will not be more negative.
Well, those are very wise words to end the talk on. The book is Jihadism Constrained, and I highly recommend anyone that's interested in the topic or that just wants to know more to read it because you'll definitely get a different perspective than what's generally out there, and that is also a perspective that's very important. And I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Barack. It's been great having you as a first-time Loopcast guest. (laughs) It was a pleasure. Thank you.